Our foray through the service has reached the Lord's table. In this series, I am preaching through the service. We are considering together why we do the things that we do when we gather on Sunday mornings. Three weeks ago, we laid a foundation for the series, defining worship and making clear what it does. Worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates or invites us into the story of God. Two weeks ago, we thought about preaching. In the service, we preached the inspired and errant sufficient living word of God to exalt Christ, to inspire the saints, and instruct the saints. We preached that the word of Christ may dwell in us richly. Last week, we thought about singing. Congregational singing is commanded by God, and that's three movements. A vertical movement, where together we exalt the Lord, a horizontal movement, the scriptures say addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, where we encourage and build up one another, and an inward movement. We sing to remind ourselves of things that we already know. We sing to move truth from our head to our heart. A recurring theme of this series, if you've been paying attention, is that Christian worship is participatory. Christian worship is participatory. That term liturgy means the work of the people. We come with our heads, hearts, and bodies to worship God together, to remember and rehearse the gospel story that it may shape our lives as we live into our role in the story of God. Perhaps nowhere is the participatory nature of Christian worship more evident than at the Lord's table. When we eat bread and drink juice, I'll say wine and juice interchangeably throughout the sermon. I grew up in churches that did not observe the Lord's Supper very often. I remember doing it occasionally, probably quarterly in some churches, monthly in some churches, and if that church had an evening service, we did it then. Now growing up, the evening service was a good place to do homework. I don't know if we have any good church kids here, but testimony time and algebra go together like peanut butter and jelly. When I went to college, the churches I was a part of would do the Lord's Supper occasionally, but often not with a ton of intentionality, clarity, or regularity. That was the water I swam in. So in the early days of planting resurrection, we did it in like fashion. Over the course of my seminary studies, though, I began to really think more critically, biblically, and theologically about what happens in a church service. I remember one particular weekend, so I did my um, MDiv at a school in Wake Forest, North Carolina, at Southeastern Seminary, and I tried, so I was here planting the church, and so I was mostly online, so I tried whenever I could to do a hybrid weekend, so that means you go down like on Thursday night, and all day Friday, all day Saturday, you're in class, an opportunity to meet your, your classmates, meet your professors, and things like that. And so. Uh, in our Theology 2 class, I went down to Wake Forest, and uh, we're in the hybrid weekend, and we spent almost the entire weekend talking about the Lord's Supper. And I remember thinking, why are we spending so much time on this? Then I began to realize that the answer is that this is a really, really big deal. We then began to observe the Lord's Supper monthly for a while, then every other week for a while, and then eventually transitioning to a weekly observance of the Supper, the pattern which holds to this day. 
as a general leadership principle, I think change happens best when done slowly and clearly. So in the spirit of this series, why? Why did we begin to take the Lord's Supper monthly, then every other week, and now why do we take it every single Sunday morning? There's so much I could say, and as I've given the caveat at every service in this series, I'm not saying everything there is to say about preaching, I'm not saying everything there is to say about singing, and I'm certainly not saying everything there is to say about the Lord's Supper, but I will say three things in answer to that question this morning. Why do we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday? First, to remember and proclaim the gospel. To remember and proclaim the gospel. Second, to commune with Jesus, to commune with Jesus. And a third reason we take the Lord's Supper every week is to cultivate unity, to cultivate unity. We take the Lord's Supper every Sunday to remember and proclaim the gospel, to commune with Jesus and to cultivate unity. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just verses 23 through 26. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. I'll talk a bit more soon about the occasion that's giving rise to this teaching from Paul. Why the Lord's Supper is being corrected in their spiritual practice. What we must see here is that Paul understands the Christian observance of the Lord's Supper to be part of the living tradition that the church receives from Christ. Paul is saying, I am giving you what I have received from Christ. Christ himself institutes the Lord's Supper. I'll simply consider Luke's account from Luke 22. I'll read from the scriptures. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in the middle of a Passover feast. The Passover feast was instituted by God long, long ago to remember the Passover of God's people as they escaped slavery in Egypt. How many times have I said it in this series? We cannot understand New Testament worship without Old Testament theology. Jesus, the true and better Passover lamb, will die in our place. 
His blood will cover the doorposts of our hearts that the wrath of God may be averted. His dying and rising will free humanity from sin. And here, Jesus is instituting a new feast. At the table sits the fulfillment of the Passover feast, the the point to which the memorial is speaking. And here, the Lord himself institutes a new memorial, a new feast, one that will memorialize the redemption that's found in his death and resurrection. Just as Jews look back at the Passover and the Exodus, Christians look back at the cross. In our passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that by observing this memorial, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We call this the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table because it's his. It's his idea. It's his institution. It's about him. It's for him. And it's with him. There may be one preacher on any given Sunday, like usually me, standing up, preaching to the congregation. Sometimes it's someone else standing up, preaching to the congregation. But when we get to the Lord's Supper, we are an army, a multitude of preachers. We're all proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes as we come to take the elements. We learn from Paul that the apostles continued breaking bread and drinking wine to remember and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus. Luke tells us in the beginning of Acts that the early church committed themselves to fellowship, prayer, the apostles' teaching, and the breaking of bread. That term has sort of Eucharistic undertones. Let's zoom out for just a moment to see the way that our understanding of worship and the Lord's Supper is a memorial, a feast given to us by Christ fit together. Worship remembers, rehearses, and anticipates the story of God. The memorial feast of the Lord's Supper that Jesus has given us is one that memorializes what he's done. It's a way to remember the gospel story. We rehearse through this ritual action of a sacred meal a story that we are remembering, proclaiming, and anticipating. Every time we gather at the Lord's table, don't miss this, friend. Every time we gather here, we are remembering that which we must never forget. When we come to the Lord's table, we are looking back to the central event of human history. That means every single week, no matter the sermon text, no matter the attendance, no matter the energy, no matter the music, we look back to the death of Jesus the Christ on the cross for our sins. The service always lands here. The sermon always lands here. We are reminded over and over again of the most important fact of human history by coming to the Lord's table. This is our altar call. It's a call for non-believers to repent and be baptized. And it's a call for believers to remember the death of Jesus and anticipate his coming. Paul puts another timestamp here. Proclaim his death until he comes. We come to the table every week. We are looking backwards to the most pivotal event in human history. And we are looking together forward to the day he returns, to the consummation of all history. Today we eat this feast with him in the kingdom of God. We receive from the apostles what they received from Jesus, a ritual meal that memorializes the cross. A meal that's meant to be eaten for posterity. A meal that Christians will eat together over and over and over and over again until the Lord returns. A meal by which the church will never forget what Christ has done for her. 
Brothers and sisters, we do the Lord's Supper. We eat the Lord's Supper. We come to the Lord's table week in and week out because we embrace that which we have received from our Lord. The Lord's Supper is a memorial meal. But brother and sister, don't miss this. The Lord's Supper is more than a memorial. Here, our second point, here we commune with Jesus. Now let me... uh, be clear, uh, we do not believe that the bread and juice undergo any material or metaphysical change. Um, it's just bread or a stale wafer currently. Uh, it's just juice. And Christ, to be clear, is not dying over and over again every time we come to the Lord's table. Though we handle the elements reverentially because they are signs of Christ, they point us to Christ, the elements themselves are are not to be worshipped. Unfortunately, I think many evangelicals have been so scared of any talk of a real presence of Christ in the elements that we have developed a functional theology of real absence. Christ is present with us anywhere, but not at the table, you Roman Catholic. (laughs) Man, I was so tempted to really dig into our Baptist heritage here. In this sermon, I had notes from the best Baptist theologians ever, guys like Andrew Fuller, John Gill, uh, Benjamin Keach, even up to Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, where I was going to come in and dig in. But I thought, this is not a class. This is a sermon. Like, I'm not preaching to history students. I'm I'm preaching to the people of God. So uh, what we have here, this is my favorite part of the sermon. This is the meat of the sermon. This is a little difficult, but if you'd lean in, there will be uh, just tenfold the blessing for us together. I've worked hard to make some, I think, relatively complex stuff accessible, so lean in here. Let's look just at one little excerpt from a, a, an early Baptist confession of faith. We have it up on the screen. This is Article 30, Section 7, Second London Baptist Confession. I'm going to read this and talk through it. So again, uh, please, please, please bear with me. There will be some moments where you're like, this is confusing. But I'm going to come back and make it as simple as I can, and the payoff is going to be not only a deeper understanding of the Lord's Supper, but that deeper understanding of the Lord's Supper will be more robust, be more rich, be more full, and that will in turn affect our practice of the Lord's Supper. So if you're one who has said this can get rote, this can get boring, it can get just repetitive, I think the key to fixing that is is digging in here. So let's look at this one excerpt. I have edited some of the old language to make it uh, more accessible for us. Article 30, section 7, worthy receivers partaking of this visible element do inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet not carnally and bodily, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not bodily or carnally, but spiritually present to the faith of the believer in the ordinance as the elements are to their outward senses. Worthy receivers partaking of this element do inwardly by faith, really and indeed, not carnally and bodily, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. Here is what that means 
in the simplest possible terms. We receive Christ in all his spiritual blessings when we come to the table. You're eating physically and you're eating spiritually. Maybe this is even simpler. If you're taking notes, write this down. Spiritual nourishment is really happening. Spiritual nourishment is really happening. One of my favorite things about this early Baptist confession of faith is it is remarkably similar to an early Anglican, Presbyterian statement of faith. As the reformers, as Protestants are working out their view of the supper, they're trying to make sense of what Jesus is teaching. That this is his body, this is his blood. Spiritual nourishment is really happening. Jesus is teaching this in John 6. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The bread, yes, in substance and nature remains bread. But we can call that bread the body of Christ when I hold it up every week and say the body of Christ because Jesus does, both here and at the institution of the supper. Almost no phrase in the history of the church have Christians fought about more than this one. This is my body. We don't want to say more than Jesus as people of the book, but but we certainly don't want to say less than Jesus. Paul even asked the Corinthians in the 10th chapter, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of one bread. Why do we take the Lord's Supper every single week? to spiritually meet with Jesus and receive the blessings he gives us. Are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? Come to Jesus. Are you weary and in need of rest? Come to Jesus. Are you a sinner in need of forgiveness? Come to Jesus. Are you lonely and in need of a friend? Come to Jesus. Are you afraid and need comfort? Come to Jesus. Are you confused and need truth? Come to Jesus. Jesus could have instituted any old way for us to look back on and remember and anticipate his dying, his rising, and his returning. But he chooses a meal. He chooses food. I think Jesus gives us food because food nourishes our bodies in the same way he nourishes our souls. The Metropolitan Tabernacle, a big church in London, pastored by Spurgeon, he practiced the Lord's Supper every week. And looking back on that practice, 
The old pastor said, I thank God that coming to this table every Sabbath day, as some of us do, and have done for years, we have yet, for the most part, enjoyed the nearest communion with Christ we have ever known. Coming to this table reminds us who Jesus is for us and reminds us who we are for each other. We come to this table to remember and proclaim the gospel. Every time you come, you're looking back on what Jesus has done. You're proclaiming his death until he comes. You are looking backwards and you're looking forwards. Every time you come to this table, you're coming by faith to feed on the Son of God, to receive him and all his blessings. Just like you are really eating, you are really being nourished spiritually as you commune with Jesus. We ignore this table. We, 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 we look down at it at our own peril. And when we come to this table, we come as members of one body because there is one bread. I mentioned that we would talk a little bit about why the Apostle Paul is writing this corrective to the Corinthian church. And you see early in the letter to the church at Corinth that there's disunity in the church. Some say, I like Apollos better. He's my favorite preacher. Or Peter, he's my favorite preacher. Or Paul is my favorite preacher. And some of them are really spiritual and they know not to get into that pettiness. So they say, I follow Jesus unlike the rest of you. And so it's still delineating themselves from others and being tribalistic. But, 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 but Paul is wanting them to see that that's all foolishness. Of course, there'll be factions among you to prove who's sincere. Some will faction off and go their other ways, the way not of Jesus, not of the apostolic tradition. But there is a profound disunity in the church at Corinth that Paul is speaking to. And in fact, the church at Corinth is using the Lord's Supper, that which is designed to speak to the unity of God's people as an occasion, an opportunity for showing off all the ways that they're different. Check it out in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 22. But the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 17. That is a striking thing to hear from the Apostle Paul. When you get together for church, like, don't even come. Like, you're doing more bad than good when you get together. Your, your, your services are so marred by sin and selfishness and pride and disunity that when you get together, it's not for the better. It's for the worse. There's a type of spiritual activity that we do just because we do that if we don't understand what we do may not be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you or that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The church at Corinth has corrupt worship because they've corrupted the Lord's table. They are using it as an opportunity to make social distinctions between them. Apparently it's eaten in the context of a larger meal 
and the actual eating of the meal is beginning to replace the spiritual significance of the meal. The rich are eating all the food and getting drunk and the poor are going hungry. Paul is flabbergasted. What? Eat and drink in your own houses. This place isn't for physical feasting. This is about God. I won't commend you in this. I'll, I'll rebuke you. The thing that's supposed to bring you together, you're using to highlight all the ways that you're different. Because Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that when you come to this table, you come as brothers and sisters, or you don't come at all. When you come to this table, no one cares how much expendable income you have on food and drink. When you come to this table, no one cares what job you have. When you come to this table, no one cares what you look like, what you wear, how you smell. When you come to this table, no one cares how many letters you have behind your name. Because this is not your table, Paul says. This is the Lord's table. And we come because we are his people. We come because we all need Christ. We come because we have been invited by the Lord himself. You have a seat at the table because Jesus reserved one for you. It's like me at a fundraising event. If you see me at a fancy fundraising event, it's because someone has paid the way of that poor pastor. In the same way, we come to the Lord's table because someone else has paid our way. Remember that first communion, that final Passover, Jesus and his disciples gathered together. Jesus washes their feet before they eat. He takes the posture of a servant. He serves them the bread and the wine. And you notice the detail that we just sort of glossed over on the initial reading, that he will not eat this meal again until he eats in, eating it anew in the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, we need to remember that the same Jesus who set that first table for the inauguration of this memorial meal, the same Jesus will set another table. I think we get a glimpse of this in Luke's gospel in Luke 12, Jesus is telling a parable in verse 37, speaking of the faithful servant. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Oh, brother and sister, this will be the final and great reversal of the fall you hear the echoes of the serpent in this take and eat? Take and eat this fruit from the forbidden tree. I know God said not to, but he doesn't really know what's best for you, does he? He just doesn't want you to become like him. Take, Adam, Eve, take and eat this fruit. Jesus stands before his death, inviting his disciples to take and eat of his body. Every week we gather, we come to the Lord's table, Jesus offers you take and eat because there will be another feast where the Lord himself sets the table, where the lamb who was slain is seated 
But the lamb himself is the servant. In the same way we respond with Peter, don't wash my feet. You are the Lord. You're the master. You can't wash my feet. But we hear the words of Jesus. If I don't wash you, if I don't serve you, then you have no share with me. We one day will be reclined at the table with the Lord himself and all the saints who have gone before. Just like Jesus set a table for his first disciples, he will set another for all of us. We are going to a heavenly banquet with all the saints who have gone before. And every time we take this supper, we look back on the first one and we look ahead to the last one. We transcend the space-time continuum when we come to this table. We taste both what Christ has done for us in the past, what he's doing for us now, and what he will do for us in the future. But not only that, we come to this table together. For there is one bread. For there is one Lord. We cultivate unity as we come to this table. Unity with one another in this fellowship and unity with saints around the world who gather around the same table to receive the same nourishment from the same Savior, the nourishment that saints of the past now know in full. We come to this table as those who have been reconciled to God and each other, committed to pursuing unity in the face of all the world's challenges. Around our family tables, we learn what it means to be a family. And around this family table, we learn what it means to be the family of God. We are knees under the table with people who are very much unlike us. But we do not invite ourselves to the table. Jesus has invited us to the table. Jesus is the one who's brought us into the family, that we sit at one table because we share one Lord. The same person who invited you is the same person who invited me. And that is our big brother who's gone before us, who's lived a perfect life, who's died in our place, who's risen from the dead, and who invites us now to take and eat of his body for spiritual nourishment. We come to this table as those who have been reconciled to God and each other, committed to pursuing unity in the face of all the world's challenges. Uh, Nick, Ryan, you guys can come on up. I'm basically finished. I wanted to preach a short sermon this morning, uh, not because this is an unimportant one. In fact, it's personally my perhaps favorite one because I think it's, it's fresh for us in many ways. For some of you, it's new, it's brand new. And that's exactly why I wanted to keep it kind of short, to really dig into these core ideas that we are remembering and proclaiming the death of the Lord until he comes when we come to this table, that we are really and spiritually, really and truly, as the Baptist said back in the 1600s, confessing the shared faith they have with other Christians. We are really and truly, yet spiritually, feasting on the Lord, receiving spiritual nourishment just as we eat these elements and we cultivate unity around this table. There may be some objections that one may have to this. Where in the Bible, right, do you see that you should do this every week? I would answer, where in the Bible do you see that we should preach every week? Where in the Bible do you see that we should sing every week? What we're doing in this series is we're identifying the Bible's elements of worship and we are ordering them in the way that Scripture orders them. We find the elements in the Scripture, we order them rightly, and we respond then to what's in the Bible, not to what we think is best. 
a second question, but why should we, why should we? Okay, maybe, maybe you've convinced me there. Why should we do it every week? I would answer simply this, why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we? I can think of no other way to help us learn that this isn't something you watch, this is something you participate in by having something that you physically cannot do unless you participate in it. You can do a lot of things behind a screen. You cannot eat from a screen. A third objection is that, well, it's, it's boring. It's ritualistic. I would say a few things. First, I would say that ain't a Jesus problem. That's an us problem. The sun rising and setting every single day get boring. Oh, we get bored with beauty quickly. But it's understanding, though, to think this is ritualistic and boring if you think nothing's happening. If you have a real absence of Jesus, if this is just a dry and rote thing where you don't believe you're getting spiritual nourishment, you don't believe you're communing with Jesus, you don't believe you're doing anything serious. So I think maybe a, a corrective to that is by understanding what's happening. We can work out this idea that ritual must mean boring. A fourth objection, the last one I'll use here in the conclusion is just, I've, I've never did this at my other church. I, I didn't do this at my old church. Are we getting too whatever? First, I would say, I think way more Christians than not have done this more regularly than we do today. Second, we know for a fact that by the second century, this is happening pretty much every time the church gathers. We think this is happening almost, if not every time the church gathers from Hence and Luke and Paul that I referenced earlier. We know this is happening enough in the Corinthian church that's a recurring problem. Luke seems to imply in the Acts narrative that it was part of the regular rhythms of church life. And the last thing I would say is perhaps we haven't observed the supper enough because we've forgotten who the service is for. If the church service is just meant to be bigger, faster, stronger, it's just a, a show, right? Christian, bring your non-Christian friends and let's impress the heck out of them. Let's get the best music we can get. Let's get the best stage presence we can get. Let's get the most practical stuff we can get and let's, let's make it for non-believers. If that's the case, then you are getting rid of this because this is strange to non-believers. It was strange to non-believers in the first century. In fact, we have historical records that say some of the antagonists to the early Christian movement called them cannibals because there were secret meetings, they said, where they would eat and drink blood and flesh. But I think that when we crowd out the strange things, we can crowd out the important things. And I think that if we lose our vision of the Lord's table, then we can lose our vision of what happens on Sunday morning. That if you're not a believer, we are so thrilled you're here. And I try to explain everything we do so that you can understand it, you can hear the gospel. But the scriptures teach that when the church gathers, it's for the edification of the saints that God may be worshiped as we remember, rehearse, and proclaim his story, that we learn to live into this story. And the way that we can learn to live into this story is by focusing on the middle of it. Don't lose the plot. <laughs> Don't forget what's most important. Don't forget that this is all about Jesus of Nazareth who lived, died, rose again, and will come again to judge 
the living and the dead. And when we come to this table, we're coming to the Lord's table to live the Lord's life, to be faithful, to play our role in the Lord's story. The table centers us on the central things. The table is an invitation for the non-believer to repent, believe, be baptized, and come feast on Jesus. The table is an invitation for the Christian over and over and over again. That the altar call is not just for the all eyes closed and all heads bowed, non-believer in the back, but the altar call is for you to come every week and lay your life down for Jesus who has laid his life down for you. What if we learned sacrificial love by rehearsing and remembering it every single week? I never did this in my old church. Why? Not the pastor of your old church. I pray that we would join the company of saints around the world who have gone before, who are yet to come in taking and eating of the body and blood of Christ that spiritually we may feast on him who is really present as we come to this table. We stand on holy ground. Let's pray. Father, you invite us to this table that we don't deserve to be at. You serve us and we don't deserve to be served by you but if we're not served by you if we're not washed by you we have no share in you Lord we confess as we come to this table that we need Jesus to make it through this life to be a faithful disciple to be faithful in the world to be a faithful uh, man woman husband father friend to be faithful in any of these like we need Jesus and we confess that when we come to this table but we confess and believe by faith that you provide all that we need and even more so in your abundant love for us. So as we come to this table this morning, we come not as materialists or rationalists. We come, Lord, as believers. We come, Lord, as those who believe something supernatural and transcendent is happening. We come believing what you say. We come believing that you are with us. We confidently confess with you that though this is bread and wine, bread and juice, this is your body for us. This is your blood for us. And we hear your invitation to take and eat. Oh, like the psalmist says, may we taste and see that the Lord is good. In his name we pray. Amen. So come, in light of all we've heard, and receive the Lord's Supper. Come get the elements at your own pace, spaced out however you feel comfortable. Return to your seat, and we'll take it together in just a moment. That night, Jesus took the bread, and he broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ the bread of heaven.
Then he took the cup and he poured it. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. The gifts of God for the people of God, let us keep the feast.